So this evening I would like to talk about two more paramis. Uh, the parami of wisdom and the parami of renunciation. And mostly I'll be talking about uh, wisdom that forms and arises through the practice of renunciation. And again, this is one of these teachings where so many of the Buddha's teachings are really interwoven within each other. And this is very true with wisdom and renunciation. So I'll say I'll start a little uh, with wisdom and then mostly focus on uh, how, how the practice of renunciation relates to what we're doing here and what relates, how it relates to our lives. So as you're probably very aware that we don't live in the wisest culture that I think has ever existed. And there's a lot of mainstream cultural delusion and um, uh, lack of wisdom, and, and sometimes even a resistance to wisdom, a resistance to the truth, resistance to, say, the scientific knowledge about global warming, for instance, or some of our political policies. And we see that you know, throughout the culture, um, in, in the consumer culture particularly, um, where consumption is the highest wisdom, not ecological sustainability or whether this product is actually have, has any value or use. So some advertising to prove my point. This is from Corona Beer. And there's a picture of a couple of beers on the beach. And uh, one says uh, Corona Extra, which is just a regular Corona Beer. And the other one is Corona light, and above it it says enlightened. The Corona light is enlightened. So get enlightened by drinking beer. And this is another one. This is from Java, no Java, Jamba Juice. We've discovered a new path to delicious bliss, new enlightened smoothies. And you have a tanker of, uh, instead of a deity, you have a cup of smoothie. So... I get a lot of my wisdom teachings from bumper stickers, and these are some of my favorites. Uh, sometimes I wake up grumpy. Other times I let him sleep. <laughs> Takes a little while to get that one. Where there's a will, I want to be in it. <laughs> if we aren't supposed to eat animals, why are they made of meat? Time is the best teacher. Unfortunately, it kills all its students. Consciousness, this is for meditators, consciousness, that annoying time between naps. Mm. And lastly, be nice to your kids. They'll choose your nursing home. So as you've been exploring in your practice, wisdom arises through mindfulness, through a mindful, curious investigation, examination, moment-to-moment -moment exploration of your experience. That's how we, we come to know the truth and how wisdom arises in connection with the truth of our experience. And the Buddha said, as is often quoted, everything we need to know can be learned, can be seen within this fathom-long body. And so we, our time here in asana and in sitting and walking as we see, we see a whole universe dis discoverable in, our, in, our, in, our, in this, this body. Wisdom in, the, in this context is not intellectual knowing, but is experiential understanding that we learn through our direct experience, not through books, not through reading, but to actually grok it for ourselves, the truth of impermanence or the truth of selflessness or the truth of unsatisfactoriness, we have to see that again and again, very intimately in our experience for it to really uh, land in ourselves as wisdom. So I remember this story that uh, just came to me today when I was first started teaching. It was on an insight meditation correspondence course and I was uh, corresponding with a woman in Wales 
and she told me the story uh, that speaks to this this difference between intellectual knowing and and, and real and real visceral understanding. She had gone to a Kala Chakra uh, uh, ritual with the Dalai Lama in London many many years ago, and was very moved. And a lot of that teaching is oriented towards um, the transience of, of existence, the changing nature of things. And at the end of the ritual, she went up to the altar and, and collected some rose petals that had scattered there as part of the blessing and took them home and put them on her altar as a memory of that experience. And of course, over time, the rose petals got dried up. And, but she didn't want to get rid of them because they were, had, had such precious meaning for her. And then one day she came home from work and the cleaner had vacuumed up all these you know, <laughs> dusty, you know, old bits of flowers that were lying around. And she was horrified when she got in and then when her husband came home, she asked him to pick through the vacuum bag to see if she could pick out the uh, rose petals. And, and it's, of course, the room is getting full of dust and debris. And, and halfway through that, she realized, wait a minute, this, this, this teaching was about change and impermanence. And here I am <laughs> trying to hold on to rose petals that have gone. Um, so sometimes it takes those kinds of moments to get, oh, yeah, it's a lived understanding. This is from a poem called by Marie Howe, who's um, writing about her brother who um, uh, passed at a young age of AIDS at 28. It's called The Last Time. The last time we had dinner together in a restaurant with white tablecloths, he leaned forward and took my two hands in his hands and said, I'm going to die soon. I want you to know that. And I said, I think I do know. And he said, what surprises me is that you don't. And I said, I do. And he said, what? And I said, I know that you're going to die. And he said, no, I mean, know that you are. And he said, no, I mean, know that you are. One of the mysteries about being human is we forget that we're mortal. We live our lives as if it's not going to happen to us. And when that wisdom becomes so innate within us, we live differently. We make different choices. We respond more alive to the moment. So one of the, the, the first things we need in the cultivation of wisdom is the empty, emptying of our own minds that think we know. Right? How often do we approach an experience or a meditation or a person or a situation and we think we know what it is. We know, oh, I know what this retreat's going to be like. Right? How many of you had that thought? Oh, yeah, I've done lots of retreats, 10-day retreats before. I, know, I kind of know what's going to happen. Right? And you sort of kind of do on one level. On another level, we have no idea what's going to happen. We still don't know what's going to happen in the next five days. Yeah? So to empty the mind that thinks it knows and then prohibits um, being touched by what actually is unfolding. So there's a famous story, I'll just mention it, of the Zen, the Zen master who uh, is approached by his student. He's, a, he's a, a, a patron of the monastery, but also a lot, has a lot of hubris and um, not very humble. And the master knows that, as these Zen masters do. And um, they were having tea. And the master started pouring the tea, and he filled up the cup, and then filled up the cup, and the tea started pouring over and pouring over, and the patron was like, well, what's, stop, 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 stop. What are you doing? You're overflowing the cup. What are you doing? And the master said, you asked me uh, for some teachings, and, I, and I, I'm saying to you, how can I give teachings if your mind is already so full of ideas to start with? So empty your minds. So wisdom in, the, in this context of Dharma practice is knowing the truth, of particularly knowing what brings suffering and what brings peace. Knowing the difference between skillful and unskillful, between wholesome and unwholesome thoughts, feelings, actions. To know what brings about liberation, to know what thwarts the dawning of clarity and wisdom. To know the power of the Brahma-viharas, of love, of kindness, of connection, of compassion, of gratitude, of generosity to know these in, in, instinctly uh, or in, 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 uh, inherently within our being, to not just know them as a nice idea, but to actually live them. 
So and one of the ways our wisdom is revealed is in how well we can let go, how well we can renounce that which is causing suffering to ourselves or others. As the poet Hafiz writes, um, how does it go? Uh, we've probably quoted this before. You have all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. Do not mix them. Yeah, we have all, we have all this, this, you know, thoughts, feelings, emotions, desires, plans, fears. And if we mix them in a certain way, we cause suffering. And so Dharma practice is understanding what are the basic ingredients we have and how do we combine them in a way that creates well-being. So renunciation. What happens when you hear that word, renunciation? Just notice what happens in your being, like, oh, goody, goody, I can't wait to hear about renunciation. Oh, I can't wait to give up lots of stuff. Right? Just, and, and you just say a word. What, what, do, you, what do you notice? Catholicism. <laughs> Gloom. Ooh. Anything else? No. <laughs> That's good. So I'm going to talk about the joy of renunciation. <laughs> Because the the renunciation that leads to happiness and well-being. This is from Ananda Mayamar, a wonderful Indian mystic. Four businessmen come to see her, and they ask her, why are you renouncing the world and giving up so much? And she laughs. It is you who are giving up the world for a little money and possessions. By my renunciation, I gain everything. By my renunciation, I gain everything. So in the Buddha's life was an interesting example of this. He had an affluent life, a luxurious life, in not dissimilar to how many of us probably live, where we had a lot of material comforts, a lot of access to sensual pleasure. And he, he gave it all up. He renounced all of that because it wasn't satisfying. It didn't satisfy a profound hunger he had in his heart for liberation, for freedom. That is, as pleasant as all that was, it didn't satisfy the deepest yearning in his being. And that's probably why you're here too. You could have gone 10 days in Bermuda or Hawaii or a spa or who knows wherever you could have gone. No, but you came to the YMCA in Colorado. (laughs) It is beautiful in a certain way. but there's something deeper in your being that knows, no, I, I, I want to know the truth. I want to be free. I want to understand these practices. I know they have great significance for myself and my students and my life. So you're, you're, you know, you're, you're part of a great tradition of people going forth, of renouncing conventional ways of being to seek something deeper and more satisfying and more profound. The Buddha said, Why should I, who am subject to old age, sickness, and death, seek that which is subject to uh, old age, sickness, and death? Why don't I seek instead that which is not subject to those conditions? Why don't I seek the deathless freedom, peace, nibbana, that's possible in this life? So I was thinking the other day uh, of analogy of the spiritual path being like uh, a backpacker, as I backpack a lot, when we go through life and maybe we, we, we were born and we have a very uh, weightless backpack. And then as time goes on, we load up fears and self-loathing and views about not being good enough and um, anxiety and all kinds of stuff until, we, until at some point we, look, we, we, we wonder why we're so you know, heavy and dragged down while it's like, you know, walking at 9,000 feet, while it feels like molasses, yeah. And at some point we sort of wake up and go, what, 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 what is that? What, what am I carrying? You know, enlightenment is the reason that word is used, enlightening. We're enlightening the burden in, on the path, right? We're, we're, we're enlightening the load. And so in our practice, we see all the various things, views, conditionings that are weighing us down. And as we see them, and as, as, they, as, as, they, as they release, as they self-liberate in different ways, we become lighter. But we're still backpacking. It doesn't mean we, we then, we suddenly, you know, 
take the load out of the backpack and then everything's happy and joyful. No, we're still on the path and we meet life's vicissitudes, happiness and joy and sorrow and loss and peace and gain and success and failure, right? But our load is lighter, so we have more capacity and more energy and more resources to deal with whatever we encounter. So there's a lot of talk in the New Age world about letting go, right? You hear that word a lot, right? Oh, just let go. Someone says, oh, yeah, I'm really struggling with this thing. And they say, oh, just let go. And you want to punch them. Because <laughs> if you could, you would, right? I mean, but it's not so easy. And I came across this thing recently. Um, uh, it's called 15 Things You Should Give Up to Be Happy. And I'm just reading the list. And they're fine things to work on practicing releasing. But the, the, it's the, the tone in the article. And I, I'm just going to read you the titles of the 15 things. Um, but it just points there's a certain glibness about how this, this, this is somehow easy. Give up your need to be right. Your need for control. Give up blame. Give up self-defeating self-talk. Give up limiting beliefs. Give up complaining. Give up the luxury of criticism. Give up your need to impress others. Give up your resistance to change. Give up labels, fears, excuses. Give up the past. <laughs> give, up, give up attachment. Give up living your life to other people's expectations. Just give up those attachments. What's wrong with you? Just do it. <laughs> but renunciation, as you know, as you've explored this, it's a process. And, and often it's a slow process. And sometimes it takes years and maybe decades to disentangle the tangles of some of the things that we lug around in our very heavy backpack. So the first step is it requires awareness. It requires mindfulness to know what it is that we're carrying around that's painful, that's problematic, that's causing us suffering. It requires understanding. Understanding of, of, what, of how this is causing us difficulty or strife. And then it, and then it involves letting be. First we have to th- let, let things be so we can actually have it take a good look at them before we can release them. And then it also requires that we bring the heart in. We have a lot of compassion. You know, a lot of the, all these things, you know, control, limiting beliefs, criticism, labels, fears, that's all very painful. Right? And the heart is a wonderful, mm, mm, can't think of the word. When we bring the heart in, when we bring softness and kindness and compassion, it allows letting go to happen much easier. If you notice what happens when love arises, Everything softens. The nervous system softens. The body softens, right? It allows a release to happen easier. Renunciation also requires a certain discernment to know whether letting go of something is onward leading and leads to your well-being or not. Or is it depriving or punishing? Maybe you have an idea it's good to let go of something and you try to let go of it, but you're not actually ready to let go of it. And so it's actually can be a form of cruelty to yourself. I remember when I first started practicing uh, Buddhism, I was 19, 20, I was 19 and 20. And um, I was a wild punk rocker. I was really fun, crazy life in London, squatting and as an anarchist and doing the, the Occupy movements back in the 80s, the first Occupy movements of trying to stop the city of London. And, very creative, made, me, made all my clothes and stuff like that, and it was really uh, wild. And then I got into Buddhism, and some, somehow I thought I had to be a good Catholic Buddhist. <laughs> and I shut all that down. I, I let that go, because I didn't think that was very spiritual. So I got rid of my clothes, I shaved off my mohawk, I stopped wearing wild stuff, and, and just sat on myself. And it was a very unhealthy renunciation. Right? It wasn't a wise, discriminating renunciation. It was, it was suppressing and letting go of things that were actually very uh, f- vital and essential to my being that took me many years to, to reintegrate. Sometimes renunciation is forced on us, where we're forced to let go. Even just coming on a retreat, we're forced to let go of certain things, like non-fluorescent lights, or <laughs> the 
kind of food that you like, or who you share a room with, or you know, just many different things, your schedule and not having access to all your things. It's a, it's a form of renunciation. It's a mild renunciation, but it's a form of renunciation. I remember being in, in Bodh Gaya in India. India is a wonderful place. If you want to practice renunciation, <laughs> go to India, because it does not conform to your, your um, demands whatsoever. It will kick you in the teeth if you have some. And I was, uh, I was I just finished a retreat in Bodh Gaya, and we were waiting for the train, and the, and the jolly train master came on and said, the train from Amritsar or whoever it was uh, is, is, is exactly on time, 8, 12, 24 hours late. So it was exactly on time, 24 hours late. It was yesterday's train, but it just happened to be coming on time. Um, or the financial crisis. Or the, you know, I have many friends who invested with Madoff, and they lost everything. You know, huge amounts of money. They lost everything. The houses. You know, so sometimes we're forced to renounce. When Byron Katie, the teacher, uh, was burgled and... Um, uh, they stole a lot of uh, her husband's, uh, I think it was a rifle collection. Um, he was mad and furious and called the police and was very angry for a long time. And she was fine, and she just said, well, it was never ours anyway. It was never ours anyway. It's never ours. We just loan this stuff. We loan these clothes and these bodies and things. And this is Ryokan from um, a time when he'd just been robbed uh, of, of all the things he had, which was probably a rice bowl, and, and a cooking pot, and maybe a staff, um, and some incense, maybe. And he wrote this haiku at the, uh, afterwards at night. He said, left behind by the thief, the moon in the window. That's a, that's a mind that can let go in the face of adversity. Left behind by the thief, the moon at the window. There are some things in our lives that require ongoing, moment-to-moment renunciation. And I think of the, the place that ha- most happens is in relationship, whatever kind of relationship you're in. Yeah? Because there's somebody else who has their own desires and goals and needs and agendas and plans rubbing up against yours, and it requires, if the, if the relationship's to be functional and healthy, requires a lot of renunciation. Yeah? Whether it's a relationship to your child or to your elderly parents, or to your spouse, or to your housemate, or to your colleague, or to your boss, right? That's one of the, that's why, that's why it's so hard. That's why relationship is so hard, because <laughs> it requires that we have to see all the ways that we're holding on with our views and attachments and agendas and ideas, and we have to soften and relax and be flexible and be able to let go to some degree. I see that a lot with friends of mine who are parents. I'm not a parent, but I've, I've been, a, been around a lot of children, but I see how much renunciation, especially when, when children leave home, it's huge renunciation. But every step of the way as a parent, letting go of control in, 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 in different ways. So the, the rest of the talk, I'm going to talk about various things to practice renunciation with, and um, it, this may sound like the, the mind may pick this up as a list of things to beat yourself up with that you haven't let go of yet. So that's not the intention, but just to notice the, with that, how you relate to the material and what your mind might be doing. So um, renunciating, rena- renouncing the, that which makes us unhappy. That's the point of renunciation, is, is letting go of the things that cause us pain or difficulty or distress, unnecessary distress. So, that, so I'm going to start with the easiest. So the first is, not necessarily totally easy, but um, so the first is the, uh, the looking at the trance of thinking, at the obsession with thinking. Right? And sometimes, uh, sometimes it's a very easy place to practice renunciation and letting go because thoughts are so ephemeral and so light in a certain way that we can, as we do millions of times in the meditation, thought comes up, and we go, oh, I'm not at work. I'm in Colorado. Let it go. And we let it go. Right? I notice this a lot when I'm backpacking or I'm out in nature, and I'm just enjoying the, the splendid views here. And, um, and then I'll notice a background chatter of my mind just 
tumbling and wandering and bubbling and gurgling about who knows what, you know, that they should paint the ceiling in the meditation hall because it's a funny orange and la 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 la. And I go, why am I doing, just let, just let it go. You know, and we, and we, have, we have that capacity. We just let it go, just let it go, just let it go. Which of course takes practice. More potently to, to, to look at letting go of the negative thoughts, the streams, the thoughts that, are, that have a tone of uh, judgment or uh, condemning or, as, as the list said, criticism or blaming. Or to, to notice the type of thoughts that you're thinking and seeing, is this, is this useful for me to keep thinking this? You know, like, like the way that we, that we imagine our future and we spend so much time planning our future. What a waste of time, most of it. You know, we have to plan certain things like flights and, you know, schedules. And, but mostly it's just um, endless chatter. Noticing the judgments. And again, practicing letting go of the judging mind. You know, so many of you talked about being plagued by different aspects of the judging mind. My practice isn't good enough. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get anywhere in my practice. My asana sucks. I look around the room and I feel like Humpty Dumpty. Um, just, and you're like, oh, judging, let it go. Judging, let it go. Judging, let it go. Or replace it with something more wholesome, like, and may I be happy, Humpty Dumpty. May I be happy. May I be happy. <laughs> so harder still is to practice renouncing views. So views are a deeper layer, a deeper sort of substrata of our mental processes. So views like, um, and when, you, when, I, when I read them, you'll see how nonsensical they are, but we hold them nonetheless. I should be some other way. Someone said this to me today in an interview. I should be some other way. I should be different than I am. Good luck. <laughs> you are the way you are. <laughs> and shoulding is, just doesn't get anywhere except makes us feel bad about where we are. I should be, in a very common one, I should be further along in my practice. I should be further along, I should be more adept in my asana practice. I should be further along in my teaching. Good luck. <laughs> Impossible. You cannot be other than where you are. I should be more supple. Or the views about your own spiritual capacity. I don't know if I can awaken. I don't know if I can cultivate matter and compassion. Yeah, very, very strong views. And if we take them, if we take hold of them, they can really hamper our, our life. Yeah, if we believe them, they're just thoughts. They're just very entrenched uh, thoughts. To know them as thoughts. Oh, look at this view. And maybe reflect on where it arises, not necessarily in the meditation, but to take some time. What, what, what's the seed of these views? Where did I inherit these views? So, um, uh, so I'd just like to hear in a very short, in a sentence or less, any views that you'd like to renounce. <laughs> Anybody brave enough to share a view they'd like to renounce? My husband should meditate. Your husband should meditate. Yes, of course he should. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Beautiful. Yes. Anything else? Your sister should do yoga. The president should be more enlightened. (laughs) Yes. The world isn't safe. Yes. Your daughter should appreciate you more. Yes, of course. (laughs) Anything else? Corporations Corporations shouldn't be people. Yes. Yes, and they are, sad to say. So, and then to look at how um, these, these views permeate and then inhibit our actions and our activity. So, um, uh, like the world isn't safe would be a good example. Um, or I'm, you know, this is particularly uh, relevant for anybody who's teaching or in some kind of way that you're, you're in, in giving presentations, where you feel un, you, you don't feel worthy to teach. Anybody have any unworthiness issues about teaching? 
not feeling good enough, not being smart enough, wise enough, deep enough, blah, 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 right? And so it's a wonderful practice. Mindfulness is such a wonderful asset because, because it gives us the gift of disidentification, which means we can feel utterly unworthy. We can have, say, in this case, a talk to give or a class to give. We can track the fact that we're feeling unworthy, and we can still present our material or the, teach the class and not have the, 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 the unworthiness completely drown us. Yeah? So that's a very, and, and, and over time, as I've learned in teaching and feeling unworthy and in comparing and judging and all the stuff that we all feel, to just, to, it, it's just like, mm, uh, it's like, it's like the weather. It's like, oh, it's, oh, now it's foggy. Oh, now unworthiness is present. Okay, thank you very much. And I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. And so to, 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 to the renunciation is to not identify so strongly, to see it and acknowledge it, and then to shift the attention. Okay, and now I'm going to do the best I can because that's all I can do. So mindfulness practice, in, in a very moment-to-moment way, asks us to look at um, our views, and particularly our agenda about how we think life should be how we think our practice should be. So we can notice it's very subtle. You can sit down in meditation and you have an idea because you've done some, because you had a wonderful morning of asana practice, that your meditation should be a certain way. Anybody have that expectation? Yeah. Or how, you, how your body should be after, be after opening, after practicing with the bandhas. Or, yeah. so, and, and it's very subtle. And, and, then, and then, it, then it, we shut out what's actually happening to what we think it should be like. On a deeper level, where the Buddha spoke to practicing renunciation with the deeper tendencies of mind, the, the, the forces of grasping, of aversion, of delusion. And so I'm going to speak a little to those. So first, noticing and, and working with the aversive mind. Anybody notice aversion this retreat? Yeah, plenty, right? It's part of being human. So things that you could look at um, exploring this idea of, of re- renou- renouncing, or if not renouncing, at least softening or releasing the habit of. Uh, the first would be complaining, the complaining mind, complaining about the way things are, which is basically resisting the way things are. <clears throat> so that's a natural thing to, to, have, um, to have, you know, notice something that's unpleasant, you don't like it, but then to notice the stories that, that entrench and deepen and make that more difficult by complaining, by thinking it shouldn't be like it is. Or the if-only mind. Anybody have the if-only mind? If only, you know, we redid the hall a little bit. And if only there was more light in here. If only they served nicer coffee. If only they had steak. If only I'd started meditating when I was 20. So noticing, uh, as this article was pointing out, noticing the blaming mind, noticing how the aversion goes outward. Oh, my life would be better if my husband meditated, <laughs> or my, my daughter liked me more. So the point of these is, is to use mindfulness to see what's causing us grief, what's causing us unhappiness. Does blame make you happy? Does complaining make you happy? Does your need to control make you happy? So the seeing of the dukkha of that, seeing of the unsatisfaction of that, allows a, a more, some loosening, some desire to not be so behind that. We can also look at our relationship to time. We're very attached to time and our views about time, as if the past and the present and the future were ultimately real in a certain way. So what about renouncing, giving up all hope for a better past? Renouncing all hope for a better past, right? We spend a lot of our time and our mind trying to rehash an argument, something we did we feel terrible shame about, and we sort of try and, and it's what the, the way the brain processes to try and bring some ease, right? 
But of course, it's futile. The past is the past. It's done. We may be able to make amends in the present, but not the past is, is what it is. The story of the two prisoners who have spent, mm, I don't know, 20 years in jail and wrongly accused, and they come out of prison, they're talking about their time inside, and one of them says, well, have you forgiven the people who put you inside? And the other one said, absolutely not, I'm furious. And the man said, well, they still got you in prison, don't they? Yeah? So we imprison ourselves by holding on to things in the past, not letting go, and who is suffering? We're suffering. Or the, 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 the belief in the imagined future. How much time do we spin in the imagined future, creating, fantasizing, planning. You know, again, there's a place for planning, there's a place for visioning, there's a place for all of that. But the tumble dryer of our mind that obsesses there, life goes by, and we spend so much time just daydreaming, planning. So there was a yogi on retreat uh, not so long ago who said I'd uh, been married for, I think, all of her life, 30-some-plus years. And um, they'd planned, uh, and they both planned to retire together. They retired together, and the second week after they retired, he died. Right? Probably a huge amount of planning. And then look what happens. We just don't know what's going to happen. This is a poem from Ellen Bass about that very fact. Yes, called If You Knew. What if you knew you'd be the last to touch someone? If you were taking tickets, for example, at the theater, tearing them, giving back the ragged stubs, you might take care to touch that palm, brush your fingertips along the life's, the lifeline's crease. When a man pulls his wheeled suitcase too slowly through the airport, when the car in front of me doesn't signal, when the clerk at the pharmacy won't say thank you, I don't remember they're going to die. A friend told me she had been with her aunt. They had just had lunch and the waiter, a young gay man with plum black eyes, joked as he served the coffee, kissed her aunt's powdered cheek when they left. Then they walked half a block and her aunt dropped dead on the sidewalk. How close to the, does the dragon's spume have to come? How wide does the crack in heaven have to split? What would people look like if we could see them as they are, soaked in honey, stung and swollen, reckless, pinned against time? What would people look like if they could see them as they are, soaked in honey, stung and swollen, reckless and pinned against time? We are all pinned against time. So the main uh, place that we associate renunciation is with the force of desire. And the Buddha talked a lot about working with this very primal, powerful energy in our, in our minds and bodies. And it manifests um, like this cartoon. I don't think I've shared on this, this course. It's from subconscious comics. And there's a, there's a young man young something or other meditating in a dark room and uh, it's all black and then there's a white light and, the, and, he, and he looks at the light, huh, what's that? Huh, looks good. I want it. I've got to have it. If I don't have it, I'm going to die. And he gets it. Yes, yes. Falls over. Ah, bliss. And then he's back on his cushion in the dark meditating. A little white light comes up. Oh, what's that? That's our life. Oh, what's that? Ooh, and then what's that? We had strawberries. Ooh, what's for supper? Ooh. And then, ooh, what's for tomorrow? Maybe chocolate, I can dip them in. Ooh. <laughs> it's a treadmill, right? We're, we're, the, ha- we're the hamsters on the, on the, on the you know, desire treadmill. The, my teacher Punjaji said, the thief of peace is the search for the happiness in the transient. The thief of peace is the search for happiness in the transient. These are wonderful things we can enjoy and taste and, and relish and... And they, and, they, and they slip through our fingers. And of course, we live in this crazy consumer culture that's completely and utterly obsessed about uh, convincing you you need stuff to buy and, and to be happy, and, and the more you have, the better. And we know all that. And they're very ingrained. Um, but it's also very deep conditioning. You know? 
Joseph Gosin coined this term catalog consciousness, where we're sitting quietly at home on Sunday reading the papers and we're looking at the big stack of magazines and you know um, catalogs that have come through, you know, clothing and whatever, and and we start looking through them, looking for something to want. It's such a deep habit. Ooh, look! Ooh, a, a, a quiet lawnmower. Ooh, just what I always wanted. Hmm. <laughs> Oh, on the, on the planes, you know, they have this, they're just hysterical. Like the, the, the invention, the, the minds that go into inventing things you never possibly need, you know, golf ball warmer and, you know, and <laughs> <laughs> just stuff. <laughs> yeah, people are buying, oh, I've got something to do, I've got 20 minutes to shop, ooh, we do. <clears throat> so I'll read you my favorite um, uh, consumer ad. This is from Outside Magazine. And uh, there's, there's a man sort of doing yoga, he's sitting like this, uh, sort of in lotus, and a uh, young guy, and he's got all his stuff with him. He's got his bike and his dog and his computer and his kayak and his guitar and his skis and his scuba and his surfboard and golf balls and all the rest of the stuff. And he, it says, Spence has put a new twist on an old philosophy. To be one with everything, he says, you've got to have one of everything. That's why he also has a new Ford Ranger, so he can seek wisdom on a mountaintop, take off in hot pursuit of enlightenment, and connect with Mother Earth by looking no further than into the planet's coolest four-door compact pickup. He says it gives him easy access to inner peace, which makes him one happy soul. So, delusion runs deep. What can we say? So how do we practice in relationship to the consumerism? How do we rest in knowing wisdom that knows the source of our well-being, that knows the source of happiness, does not come from the outside, does not come from stuff, does not come from material things, does not come from consumption? And they can be pleasant, and they can make our lives more comfortable, and they can be beautiful, but they don't satisfy our deepest desire for peace. And at the same time, we don't have to reject that world. This is from Tilopa, a great uh, Indian teacher. It's not the outer objects that bind us, but your inner attachment to them. It's not the outer objects, not the thing themselves that's a problem, but how attached you are in relationship to it. So you may have a beautiful wardrobe, or a beautiful car, or a beautiful who knows what that you love. What's your relationship to it? If you're going to be completely miserable and someone you know, keys it, then, then that's, what, that's, that's your work, that's your suffering. So, um, uh, Sogni Rinpoche has this wonderful um, example. He teaches very um, visually and uh, physically, and he talks about, um, so his example of, of desire and what we're working on is, so this, this pretend this is a flower, right? Um, okay, it's a potential piece of wood. It's a, piece, it's a beautiful piece of wood, it's a bell. It's, it's the donga thing, whatever it's called. And you go, oh, I want that, I want that. So the desire is, an attachment is, is this. It strangles the object, just like it can strangle our beloveds if we get too attached to how we want them to be. So renunciation isn't saying, oh, I'm gonna get rid of the whole lot, right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna get rid of my partner because I get too attached to them. No, you know, our part is beautiful. Our part is beautiful. We just have to release the attachment, and then the thing can be as it is. Does that make sense? Suzuki Roshi put it this way: "It is not giving up the things. Renunciation is not giving up the things of the world, but accepting that they go away. Accepting that they go away." And this is from. Uh, Mary Oliver, from part of a poem called Blackwater Woods. Every year, everything I have learned in my lifetime leads back to this, the fires in the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things, to love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes to let it go, to let it go, to love what is mortal, to hold onto it as if your own life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. That is really the essence of the practice. 
Maybe I'd soften the wording around holding on, you know, but enjoy it, appreciate it. And lastly, um, uh, to, uh, th- there are other factors that support renunciation. The beautiful talk uh, on generosity uh, is one thing that allows the, the heart and the clenched fist to open. Gratitude, realizing that we have so much. We need, realizing we don't need to be, live in scarcity and, and live like this. There was a wonderful story I read, a, a research um, piece of research where uh, two groups were given 20 bucks, $20, and um, half, one group was, was told to spend it on whatever they wanted, and one group was told to give it away. So they went off, some people bought stuff, other people gave it away, and when they came back, guess which group felt happier? Right? The ones that were letting go and giving it away. Yeah? It makes us more happy than buying whatever you can get for 20 bucks. Five cappuccinos. And lastly, and I don't have much time to go into this, but um, the, the central place that we're, we're also bringing our mindful investigation is around the attachment and the uh, suffering created by our identity, our attachment to our identity, to our inflated, to our grandiosity, to our sense of self. Um, you know, f- from the Buddha's point of view, this is the, this is the where we, where, where all of this, all of these patterns, these views, these ideas, these judgments, they const- all constellate around a sense of self that we're trying to prop up and bolster and present to the world and to uh, and the point isn't to give it up, like, oh, well, let's just get rid of that self. And that's not the point. No, the point is to see the suffering that happens around all of our scheming and, I, and a holding on and inflating and projecting and that goes on around that sense of self. Like when you're teaching a class, for instance, how much identity, how much suffering comes about how you did or you didn't do. Yeah? There's a lot of suffering comes around your identity and, and how you want to be seen, how you want to be perceived. So this is a cartoon. There's a bunch of monks meditating, and one monk's kind of getting it. Yeah. And he says, oh, yeah, first to reach enlightenment. Right here, people, woo, baby, eat my dust. <laughs> that is spiritual materialism. That is the way the ego appropriates every experience. So notice that. Notice the I thought that appropriates. Oh, this, this, this was my meditation. This is my great trikonasana. Look at that. Aren't I the best? You know? and, and just to see how we go from a simple pose, simple practice, to, oh, look how good I am. I hope people are noticing my headstand. It's really it's pretty good today. <laughs> Check it out over here. Yeah. And then we look around, we see someone doing a really amazing headstand, and we go, oh, no, damn it. I hate you. Fall over. <laughs> right? And we create separation and, and contention and fear and judgment. And the whole, thing's, the whole thing, the whole lot better. The Buddha said the conceit is better than, worse than, same as. It's all suffering because it's always unstable. We never, there's no ground. We lose the ground in which peace can arise. So I'm going to leave you with three questions or reflections, if I can find them. To reflect, in what ways has your wisdom grown in your practice, in your asana practice, your meditation practice? In what ways has your wisdom grown? So look back at all the years that you've been practicing and and just to reflect. Because I remember I gave a talk on wisdom not that long ago, and my first thought was, I don't know anything. I don't know anything about wisdom. What am I going to say about wisdom? Like, what do I know? And it took a while to go, well, wait a minute. You know, I've been doing this 30 years. I know something about something. <laughs> Surely. <laughs> so, in what ways has your wisdom grown? In what areas of your life are you still living unwisely? In what areas of your life are you still living unwisely? That would be wise of you to look at, to understand, and to, to reflect on the practice of renunciation. And then what three areas would be useful for you to practice renunciation? 
what three areas? Or 33 areas, but we'll start with three. Um, that feel realistic, that you could look at. Or maybe just take one, and you take one for the rest of the retreat. What, what, what could I practice renouncing? And maybe as simple as just my meandering thought, whenever my meandering thoughts, whenever I'm wandering around, and I'm just <laughs> daydreaming, what if I just practice letting go of that? And just, and just come into stillness and silence? Or what if I practice every time I beat myself up, I just notice it and I let it go, and I don't, I don't regurgitate it? Yeah? Or what if I practice uh, renouncing being hard on myself, yeah, really being tight in my, in my asana practice? What if I, if I came here with a certain softness and kindness to myself? Okay, so let's sit for a few moments. May we all have the wisdom to see that which is unhelpful in our practice, in our lives. May we have the strength and the clarity and resolve to practice renunciation in whatever way we can. for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.